Welcome to Soulful 7 Conversations. I'd like to introduce everybody to Dr. Jean Regan, who I have now known for 12 years when I came to Woodmont. You were one of the first people that introduced me and made me feel welcome, you and your wife. So I am 45 and you are getting ready to turn 90. Yes. And so I'm coming to you as someone that I find to be um, first, a gentleman, Thank second, um, such a scholar. Um, I mean, you are one of the headier people that I've come across. And, um, and then also, and I don't know how you're going to feel about this title, but like a spiritual mystic. You feel I'm okay um, with that. Okay. You feel like I, I just preached a sermon this past Sunday where I was talking about going to the well. And in some ways, you know, I think God puts these people in your path um, that can speak truth and wisdom and help you see um, a broader vision of the world and God and spirituality. And you do that. And I don't even think you realize you're doing it. No, I don't. Okay, well, I, much gratitude because you have been this, um, just a, a sage in my life. So I really appreciate it. And I just feel like um, you you are this fountain of wisdom in, in how to live a soulful life, how to live a beautiful life, how to love well, um, how to um, take advantage of what God has given us, how to be adventuresome. Um, and you just have a really beautiful spirit. So that is why you're sitting on the couch with me today, Jean. (laughs) And I'm hoping you're just going to give us all of this beautiful wisdom, um, to take with us. And I'm sure you are. So I'm going to start with, um, a big question. How do you know God exists? I'll have to start with the awareness of, of, and this is, Particularly come in recent years, though, I've always felt God existed, and now with what I've learned of astrophysics and been able to read and, and understand some, at least, of what uh, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is talking about in his series of lectures on the nature of the universe, and and Eric Metaxas, who has a very broad understanding, and and I have enjoyed particularly his interview on more than one occasion with uh, Dr. Uh, Polkinghorne, uh, who's a Brit with, who's an astrophysicist, but after uh, he was an astrophysicist recognized internationally, he decided he would become an Anglican priest. So he has both of those orders. Wow. So okay. um, I'm well, I love that. how you, if you're going to help me with the science and the faith. Right. And, and Eric Metaxas's book on miracles has a section devoted to the great unlikelihood that we would even be here as a species or as a planet necessarily, because we may or may not be the only planet like ours in the universe. Uh, There are some that if Mars, for instance, has had water on it, that doesn't guarantee that it has any live uh, organisms. It doesn't preclude that either though. But we're unique in that our, our, Gravitational pull is just right. If it were a little bit less, our, our atmosphere would float off and, and we would die. If there were very much more, it would be so heavy that we couldn't breathe and couldn't utilize 
the oxygen that we are so dependent on. Uh, the wa water, for instance, if your gravitational pull were less, might just float away. So lots of things are dependent on we're just exactly the right angle to spin without wobbling very much. We change just little bits from time to time. Um, so my awareness of God has come both intuitively with, with, uh, with seeing how people heal. And that's been my profession now, 40 years with a rigid discipline of practice and then probably oh, six years or more, maybe eight years of, of training uh, and then these last 20 years, I've continued to practice what I jokingly refer to as my narthex practice. Because <laughs> you're but, an orthopedic uh, surgeon by trade. Yes. Right. And uh, then uh, I think one of the questions that you, you've sent that we might discuss is, uh, what other ways do I know that there is a God? Mm -hmm. And I have some strong opinions about that too. Well, do tell. Well, first, uh, I was blindsided. I was still a resident, but a woman appeared about, she was in her late 50s, early 60s, rapidly becoming paraplegic, in other words, paralyzed from the, from the waist or actually mid-back down. Uh, and what she, she had destroyed two vertebrae with tuberculosis. And the, the tuberculous process was, was pressing on and maybe eating into her spinal cord. And so she needed what is referred to as a capiter procedure. Now in the Great, Great Britain, they do this all the time. Uh, here, I had no mentor, and I was still a resident, remember. There was no mentor either on the clinical faculty or the uh, permanent faculty uh, that, that had ever done one of these. So I turned out I was on my own, but it was not, I did not feel it was safe to try to move her somewhere. Maybe they had done one. Uh, so I undertook to do this, and without going too much into the tail of the operation, uh, got into the uh, tuberculous mass, evacuated it, and with my left index finger was palpating, that is feeling, you, you can't see the spinal cord, you have to feel it, and using my index finger and then putting a to a rangeur, rangeur is a nice French word, it means to nibble, as you know. Yes. Uh, and, and anchoring that piece with, and then leading it out without damaging the cord any further than it might have been already. But you touched the spinal cord. Oh yes, had my finger on the spinal cord and then all the little fragments of bone that were sticking in it. Mm -hmm. I realized, Farrell, that at some point, the blindsided part was, I was not the one controlling my finger. Mm -hmm someone else had a hold of it. And the only definition I could give it was the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. was guiding that finger because I did not have the skill to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, the long and the short is evacuated the, the tuberculous mass, cleaned out the dead bone, uh, got out safely. Uh, two weeks later, went back and fused her spine. We stayed in communication with one another for probably the 12 or 13 years that uh, they were there in Lawrenceburg and we could communicate. Uh, they became fairly regular visitors here to Nashville and I would not just follow her up clinically, but, but that was one thing. And the other thing that made me know that there was a God was my son and I were scuba diving. We were probably 40, 45 feet down in a cave system 
a cave system I thought I had known, and in fact, I had, I had dived that cave system before, discovered that I couldn't find my way out. I'd gotten in the cave system too soon, and so had run out of uh, familiar area. Okay, what are my choices? Well, I couldn't find my way out, so I thought, okay. I looked at my dive, and this is at night. Looked at my dive, uh, my watch and my pressure, I had about 40 minutes of air. I thought, okay, you don't panic. My son was with me, by the way. And I knew then that, that God had prepared me for this because there was no panic. I didn't kick up a bunch of uh, silt. Uh, I just simply let myself sink down to the bottom and realized, okay, I'm on the ocean floor. And I began carefully to go around the edges of the, of the cave I could see free ocean, maybe five or six feet through this tiny little passage. And so very carefully began to rake the sand aside and there was no panic. I was perfectly at ease. And I realized that yes, God was with me. And you can call it, I mean, I appreciate Paul Tillich's uh, observation calling God ground of being. Ground of my being. And that's yes, uh, I love a, that. a very meaningful statement. So. But the long and the short is I was able to get the sand out of the way, squeeze myself through, turn around, and I was either going to give, uh, give my, let my son, who was slightly bigger than I, um, feed him the octopus and lead him out that way and just let him jettison his own gear. And, but we got out and came onto the top. He was able to turn sideways and didn't hang up his, uh, his uh, regulator. And so we both got out safely with still time to spare. And I said, you want to go back down? He said, no, let's go, <laughs> let's go back let's, up. Let's go on to the shore. Well, so I do we, think there's something to be said about when you have those, you know, grounding moments where you know something beyond me, yes, um, beyond my intellect, beyond my, even my intuition, um, beyond my capacity physically, mentally, intellectually, is, is in the room, is, yes. is with me. And... Um, that's when you have those sacred moments where you're so grateful that you aren't the only one in that's charge, right. that someone else larger than you is in charge. If you were to introduce um, God as you know God to me, how would you do that? I would say the God that I know is a God of love. He's very, very forgiving. Uh, little arrows that seem to be just dismissed. Big arrows, he'll see me through those. Uh, fortunately, my life have not encountered any great major things. I guess the most major was loss of Elizabeth this last June. Uh, that was major. Mm -hmm. But uh, you had enough conversations with her and what beautiful conversations according to you and to her. But um, she said, I'm okay. To me and you're going to be okay and I took that as gospel and have, have tried to act on that mm -hmm. uh, not always as bravely as I might have I, I have this nice neat my metaphor is that my nice neat left brain I can operate from my professional brain and then as I ease over to my more sentient uh, right brain I don't do as well I love your sentient right brain. That's that's where the soul really comes into play, though, it right? Is. That's it is that's indeed. the part of us that is um, that feels 
feels so strongly our presence here on earth. And um, that's where we really experience God is from that sentient place within us. So I'd um, say that, that to, to end that, rather than go into a great deal of detail, is that uh, God is forgiving. He's very, very generous, generous to a fault because had I been born two years earlier, I probably would have been the second, in the Second World War, a real good chance of being just a foot soldier and killed. Had I been born a year later, I would have been drafted and in Korea uh, and a good chance of being killed, as were two of my very good friends. The number one in our fraternity was died a hero uh, in Korea, but got to continue with my training until I was able to come uh, into the service in the Navy in during the Vietnam War and the tertiary uh, surgical referral center, but I could do some good then. And so uh, that was a matter of, of just birth order. And I was the firstborn of the, I was, in fact, I was the oldest son of the oldest son, which always made me sit to my grandmother's right and I had the first piece of fried chicken. <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, so um, why would you say we are here? I mean, do you believe there is a, a larger plan um, that God is unfolding and that we play a role in that? Um, do you feel like, I don't know, there's a, there is a larger picture and um, we can't quite see it. And Paul says we see through the mirror dimly. I mean, do you believe that God has something that is unfolding, that God is very well aware of how each story develops? and ends and then transcends? I do, and, and I do from two major standpoints. One, of course, is the, the astrophysical. Uh, the, the Earth has, has started. It's going to be at least here probably another four billion years unless we get sucked into a black hole somewhere with another galaxy that we run into. That's from the, from the overall astrophysical, but from the the theological, uh, philosophical, personal standpoint, yes, I think that, that uh, we're here for a reason. We're here for a little while. The good part is that, that God gave gifts of intellect to people who could continue the research and to determine how we can best live. What we know now, and we think we're pretty sophisticated, Will, be sound, will sound very primitive and very ordinary in another very few decades. Right. It may take 10 years, it could be take could 40, 40 or 50 years, but uh, it, that will be really old hat by the time that, that comes around. Well, do you believe that we, Gene, Farrell, each have a unique role to play here on earth. And part of our job here is to figure out what God needs from us and then to fulfill our mission. Somehow my, my reaction to that would be, that would give me a position of more importance. I would feel arrogant to, to make that statement personally about myself. Um, I think I'm here for a reason and it was to be the best orthopedic surgeon I could. Mm -hmm. uh, I never sought the Pauline role, uh, or Saul, but Pauline. Um, but I love the Barnabas role. I love to encourage people. Mm -hmm. And most of the books I've given away 
the big ones at least, have gone to young uh, people who were interested in medicine. I've given away my first edition, Sabata Macmuric. I've given away the fifth edition, Sabata Macmuric, to a different person. Uh, I've given away 100-year-old medical uh, books and, and uh, instruments to uh, a young, young person of our church, in fact. I and, love the idea of that we're here. That's one of the things I said in the sermon that I just feel like we fill our buckets with God's peace and love and encouragement to therefore go and do the same for other people. And so you've done that as a healer, as in the medical world, yeah. being an extreme healer and encourager. Um, I'm curious, where do you especially feel the presence of God? So I know you've, you've told me yeah. before, you definitely do in the surgical suite, but, and I know that you're an avid outdoorsman. So yeah, on the farm, you just were hiking in Colorado, 10 days. You hiked what, five, 5.9 miles, you said? Yes. Yes. Which you are almost 90 and you look like a million bucks. <laughs> we're going to get to the I'll secret of that good. in a right. second. Okay. Sure. <laughs> but where do you, Gene, where do you especially, oh, and you're an avid reader too. So I, um, where do you feel the presence of God? I think I feel God's presence mostly out in the woods where it's mm -hmm. quiet. I love the quiet. Uh, I love to sit in a hunting stand and get in there long before daylight and just sit and listen. You could tell the difference between a chipmunk and a deer. The chipmunk makes much more noise than the deer does <laughs> in the leaves. Uh, or a, a, say a coyote trotting through or a, a armadillo wiggling his way across the uh, uh, across through leaves. He, he has this certain zigzag pattern that he always makes. Uh, most of them are perhaps females, but, uh, but those sorts of things. Studying sounds. Um, one of the, th the quotes that I love is from a book that uh, Annie Dillard wrote called uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And addressing the question, if something really important or wonderful happens out in the woods and nobody gets to see it or hear it, did it really happen? And her quote is this. She said, the answer must be, I think, that beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will them or sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. Gene, uh, I've just used that quote in my new book. I love that quote by Amy Dillery. And I've, I've heard sermons present. built around that. Yes, it's beautiful. Barrel of, of sermons and, and I think when I'm in the woods, I audiate, in fact, most of the time, Elizabeth said, you sound like you're dying of some sort of a respiratory disease, but I audiate some sort of a hymn or poetry or something all the time. Well, I think it's funny you're saying that because when I'm out, because nature too, that is my place. You know, my, la my life is, is what you could consider very loud. And so I do have to step away and, and I go into the woods just as you go in the woods. And I find myself like I'm almost in a musical because when I'm trotting along through the woods and I hear a squirrel, I talk to the squirrel, I talk to the trees. You know, I just, it's like we're just in this, wonderfully beautiful musical experience being in nature. And um, I think that in, in our world now, silence is not sacred. And we don't realize that we need just silence. 
um, to even just hear ourselves breathe. Um, I think we, we, we just don't do that. Um, we're in a culture that is, you should never be silent. You should always be in movement. In, um, so I do, I, I think valuing the silence is, it is the door that opens you to potentially hearing the voice of God. It does. Right. Um, who has been um, a big influence on your spiritual life? Well, they have to start with my mother. Okay. Uh, my father was different. He, he inspired... Because uh, your dad was a doctor? Too. He was, yes. Okay. He was an orthopedic surgeon. He was clinical professor at Vanderbilt of orthopedics. Um, he inspired the broad picture, but my mother, uh, first with the Bible and, and biblical stories, and then went from there uh, to Sunday school teachers. I remember Miss Rundle, uh, the superintendent of that intermediate department, and my, my teacher of, of uh, many years, Mr. Oliphant, and then to Bill Carpenter, uh, senior, that was our Sunday school teacher at, at Woodmont. But I've been blessed. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you, what are some absolute truths that have anchored your life? One truth is that what has to be committed, and Elizabeth and I talked about this a lot. We were not committed to, well, we were committed to one another, but we were committed to the commitment. Right. And that's even that's stronger. A, so than, yeah, let's, let's flesh that out because yes. you were married 65 years. Six. Seven, 66 years. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, that's like a miracle. Yeah. Um, I'm celebrating this year this week, actually, my 20th wedding anniversary. So you said you ha we were committed to the commitment. Yes. So speak a little bit about like what, what allowed you to be married in such a beautiful marriage for 66 years? Well, I think two strong personalities. Hers, though, was, was she was reared on a tobacco farm. And one time I visited there, and I hadn't been there 30 minutes. They had me in the field pulling leaves. And this is where, in the bright leaf country, where you don't cut the whole stick. You cut the, pick the leaves as they mature. Um, but I was out there, and nobody told me to wear a long sleeve shirt. I came back with a quarter inch of tobacco gum on my arm, and that was a whole different story. But I've seen her string 600 sticks of tobacco in a day. That's a 14-hour day. But hard work then. Very that hard work. Disciplined, but, hard but work. She was five feet 11. She was five feet 11 when we married. She was five feet 11 when we buried her. Uh, so she never lost height. I'm the one that shrank four or five <laughs> inches. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, the we felt anchored to that commitment. And, and, and being anchored is, was not a bad thing. Anchoring is, is, uh, is just stabilizing. And when you find yourself in places um, where you, where marriage is difficult, where it's not exactly what you thought you signed up for, how do you, or you're in a season, how do you? Well, I did not respond sometimes, perhaps as she would have liked, because I tended to get really quiet. Uh, and, you know, one time she had been gone for quite some time taking care of her mother up in Virginia. And when she came back, I had managed to uh, feel the great need for a much improved sound system. 
which I set up in the living room. And she stood in the doorway and looked because some of the packing boxes were still there being moved out. And we didn't say much to one another for a while. <laughs> so oh, I thought. I guess it is. It's that we are committed to the commitment. Absolutely. Right. That's so a beautiful this, thing. Committed. You know, you could actually translate that to, to faith. That you're committed. Because sometimes faith, having a faith, especially in the world that we're in, you've just lost your wife of 66 years. Um, you lost a child. Lost our fourth child, but um, no, there there were not many situations that that were challenging to us, because I think we both had had understandings of one another and understandings of, of life and faith and uh, that the sort of thing. The partnership, yeah, a partnership, sure, yeah, a beautiful one. It was. It really was. We were really good friends as well as loving one another. Right. Um, I got to witness that beautiful. Um, if you were to define faith and what your personal faith looks like or means to you, how would you do that? I, I would best characterize it as an awareness of the presence of God. Brother Lawrence and the practice of the presence is a good example. That little Another good book. Little pamphlet, right? yes. Practice uh -huh. of the presence of God. Yes. And, uh, but it's, it, it's almost like a drone note on, on the bagpipe. It's that same note, but it's constant and it's there. And the other, the rest of the notes are all played on top of it. Oh, it's beautiful, Gene. And, Look and, at my mystic. <laughs> You're exactly right. Say that again. It's well, the, the one note the, that's they, always yes. being played. Every other note plays on top of right. that note. And it's it's called the drone note. And uh, it it almost sounds a little bit funny when you first, when they first clamp down on the the bag. I had bagpipes at my wedding. I love the bagpipes. No, I do yeah, too. I love I the bagpipes. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I like that idea of. Because sometimes people um, identify faith as like it's it's the backpack that you strap on that's got the parachute in the back of it, and I I personally look at faith as I don't know it's just it's just the way of being in life. It's it's understanding that you are part of something so much larger. Yeah. Um, it's the divine peasant presence, that drone note that is always the thread that just runs through everything. And it's part of my job as being a faithful person to recognize it, to recognize when I see the presence of God. And also to take peace from knowing that it is there always. Right. You've just given me a sermon, the <laughs> drone note. I love it. That's always there. That's beautiful. You know, the other aspect of, of faith that it, I, I love to reinforce it from time to time. And so much good material is written about our lives and how they impact our faith. And, and you don't have to just talk about it. I, in fact, I get a little bit provoked with people that, that want to hit you over the head with their faith. I do too. It makes me uncomfortable. And and so I, I don't mm -hmm. care a whole big lot for 
so-called praise songs, mm -hmm. uh, the same praise or repeated 13 times. Right. Uh, it feels very um, personal to me. It does. It is so private. It is so intimate. I'm so grateful for it. Um, I think that sometimes the rub is when I'm not aware of it. And I, you know, I get into my daily life and I'm very in the culture and I'm too busy and I'm feeling a little bit like I'm the superhero controlling my own destiny. And then I'm, I, I kind of forget. And so it's this constant remembering the presence of God, that, that thread that's woven into everything. Um, and again, goes back to Paul Tillich. It's, it's the grounding of our being. Yes if we recognize it or not. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. if we move from that, um, would you say your understanding of God has changed over the last almost nine decades? Absolutely, because it, it started out as, as the most, as the simplest concept. And I think with, with each opportunity to learn something different, and now with with the, the, the beauty of retirement is I had the latitude to do things with Elizabeth that we never could have done before because of the, the, the commitment to a big practice. It started out a smaller practice and ultimately, in fact, now there are 58 orthopedic surgeons. And then my brother-in-law is one wonderful. group, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, but sure, it, it, would, it would be ridiculous to think that one hadn't changed in, in mm -hmm. uh, 89 years over time, but it, it started out as, as a simple faith. But then as, as one's maturity uh, increases, so does the, the maturity of that faith. And, and you draw from watching others and the way they live, you draw from uh, understandings of, of, for instance, the, the understanding of astrophysics and then more recently the time to study geology and uh and paleoanthropology of course so much of wow, the Jean. so much <laughs> of the, the language of god is anthropocentric and that's a fancy term to say about all we know is what we are right. we have to define in terms of human characteristics which we lay on god and he or she may or may not uh, uh, say well yeah that's that's the way i am but that's the best we do because, but we, we keep striving to know more and learn more and be faithful in to and, and to that. Uh, you know, we, you and I have exchanged all sorts of quotations that, and so many of them address that kind of thing. But that, that piece from Dhrubayat uh, uh, that says, um, you know, the moving finger writes and having writ moves on nor all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. So we live our lives and we, we hope we don't have regrets that we can't wash out or, or right. cry out. Um, the, the piece from, uh, you know, you asked about favorite scriptures in the little piece you, and then I have quite a number of favorites, many of them, uh, I would shout from a mountaintop because they're from Psalms and, I love and Proverbs. Psalms. Is and, there one that's and, particularly? Uh, well, the the uh, uh, first verse of the 90th Psalm, 
Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place from all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou art and, God. And then the, uh, from, from I think the sixth, uh, sixth chapter of Isaiah, uh, the first verse of that, that, in the year that King Uzziah died, died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Around him through the, flew the seraphim. Each had six wings. With twain they did cover their faces. With twain they did cover their feet. And with twain they did fly. And one cried out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, if that's not a, a statement of faith that, that can sustain you and uh, and so I love that sort of uh, presentation. So when I look at you, you know, I said you're a gentleman, you're a scholar, and you're this beautifully spiritual mystic. I mean, what does it mean, and how do you accomplish the fullest life possible here? Because you also, you're like a Renaissance man. You know, I feel like you've, you've done so many wonderful things. I mean, two weeks ago, you were hiking in Colorado. I mean, you're just, you're, I feel like you're constantly going for it. You have such an yeah. enthusiasm and in joie de vie for life that is infectious and you know, you're not letting H stop you one bit. Well, you, you just, as what was it, uh, the Marx Brothers thing, you just brought the bird down with the whatever it was that uh, the word enthusiasm. Ontios, it means God in us. That's the really? meaning of it. Enthusiasm is on, God yeah, in us? Yes, ontios. And, and between enthusiasm and the other characteristic that I've tried to pursue very deliberately is curiosity. Yes. Don't ever stop being curious. curious. Those are two essentials to life right there. Enthusiasm and curiosity. Right. And then you said commitment. Enthusiasm, curiosity, and commitment. Now, one of our nurses... Gene, we could just end right there. <laughs> there's, there's That's a, wonderful. A, there's a, a, one of our, our residents, actually, she's a resident and a nurse, and I've known her for most of my professional life, certainly. And she has a T-shirt that says, Nurse, the first face you see after saying, watch this. So <laughs> enthusiasm has to be balanced. You can't yeah. do things that if anything goes wrong, you're going to die. Well, then maybe that's the fourth one then, <laughs> balance, right? It's, 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 so there is something about, yes, that, you know, the wanderlust and I guess it's the seven on the Enneagram, the person that's just constantly maybe over-enthusiasm, yes. that there is something to be said about balance in one's life. And we push that occasionally. We, for instance, if you saw the, the movie Deliverance, mm -hmm. I've canoed that river. <laughs> of course you have, Gene. <laughs> I can only imagine you've touched the spinal cord and you've canoed the same river in we, Deliverance. We were dropping over 14-foot falls, for oh, instance. And you so you're a, an adventurous spirit. I am, but it, 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 it's tempered by, I hope somebody else has done this before. Okay. And usually they have. So you like a teacher ahead of you. Yes. So you're like my teacher, the beacon ahead. Right. So I'm not going on Deliverance <laughs> River. <laughs> How about that? Um, well, so, so what, I mean, you seem to have lived and are continuing to live such a full life. Would you say that's true? 
I think like, so. Like, are you trying to just get every last no. drop out of the honeysuckle? Had had I had I wanted to do that, I th I think, and I'm not certain I would have done things differently. But I don't drink, and simply because uh, very early in practice, I realized that to show up in the emergency room, and there were a period of 10 to 12 years, you could ask Elizabeth, uh, I seldom finished a supper without going back to the emergency room to fix a fracture or, or that sort of thing, some terrible laceration. Um, but that's kind of exciting too, because I feel like an orthopedic surgeon, I watched my brother-in-law put back in my son's um, shoulder last night. Right. So there is, there is some, you've got to, there's some, you got to be physical, a little yeah. adventuresome yeah. to be an orthopedic surgeon. You do. Uh, but that was a, a, a long way to say that, that uh, I, I, never, I, I don't drink because I don't, didn't think it was healthy. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, never smoked. Uh, boring, I guess you could call me. No, but you look at you. You're hiking and you're almost 90. And you're not like doing the little like walk around the track. You're like hiking in the mountains. I I've, love it. I've jokingly said I should have taken my Anoro, uh, Anoroelipta inhaler from COPD <laughs> and held it up and been a poster child. Oh my gosh, even you're even so admirable. Hiking at 8,300 feet, I had no trouble breathing and at all, none, whatever. Well, I just, you know, because you, you are a fan of my blog, but you know that I'm I'm looking at this idea now of, of God wants us to live the fullest life possible here. Right. God also wants us to be kind, to be generous, to love, to encourage other people. But I think God is asking us I want, I've given you the gift of this experience, this adventure, this pilgrimage, and I want you to get every possible thing you can get out of it, sure. which is the highs, the joys, the mountaintop experiences, but also, you know, the, the suffering, the disappointment, the loss. Um, can you speak a little bit of how do you make sense of and also prevail when faced with disappointment and loss, especially with grief, yeah. I mean. Farrell, I guess the good part is that I have the education to know a great deal about what different disease patterns do, do to us and, and the way we can react appropriately or conversely inappropriately. And there are a lot of ways to react inappropriately to grief. Um, so you're using that medical as a as a metaphor for how we handle the well, the very human things that we have to deal with I'm, here on I'm, Earth. I'm, I'm using the education part to to be able to tell myself, okay, this pain right now may be really really bad, but it doesn't mean anything. And so, I, for instance, one time I got diverticulitis, and I was down in the woods by myself chainsawing some pretty good sized timber and each time I would run out of gas and, and need to put gas and oil in the chainsaw I felt a little bit worse then I'd get chainsawing again and busy and I wouldn't pay attention well finally about I don't know about four chainsaws full of uh, gas and oil I thought I better get back to Nashville because Elizabeth was in California and so I got back and I called her and I examined myself because it was on a Saturday 
And so I had my stethoscope and I determined there were no tinkling borborygmi, so there, there was no dial <laughs> You're dial speaking a foreign language to me right now, but I love the idea that, that you could examine yourself. Yes, <laughs> and, and talked with the person on call for my internist who was at the moment getting his daughter married that Saturday evening and afternoon. Um, but, but knowing what things are significant and what things you can just not fluff off, but but know that, no, they're not going to kill me. And mm -hmm. I could take an aspirin or a, or a Tylenol or a couple of Aleve and go right ahead with my day. So as if that's that, the that's, metaphor though for dealing with, you know, kind of a terrific loss, dealing with change that you didn't really want to have right. happened in your life. And yet that change is going to happen to all of us. So, so is that though God has said to us, and we know that in the scriptures, we know that in the life of Jesus, that you are going to have to face disappointment. Things are not going to go the way you want them to go. You are going to, you're actually going to have to endure loss and physical pain, but also emotional pain. Um, maybe the way you thought the trajectory of your life was going to go, um, it's going to have to be tilted either to the right or to the left a couple of degrees. That... God has said, this is, this is how it's going to roll. Yeah. And so now I'm not, I'm, I haven't told you that life was going to be perfect. If anything, I've told you life is going to be very imperfect. And you just read the scriptures from Genesis all the way to revelation. And you know that there is not a single human experience in the Bible, including Jesus's life, um, that was perfect, but it's just figuring out how to gracefully courageously handle that. Yeah. Like I'm already having, you know, heart, heart murmurs about <laughs> my son, Charlie yeah. leaving to go to college in, in a year and a half. Um, so just, just, I think we as humans really have a hard time with change. We really have a hard time with loss, especially when we've invested our heart and our soul into someone like Elizabeth for 66 years. And it's just how, how can we gracefully, how would you tell us, doctor, how do we gracefully handle the rubs of being human, where we really feel human? Well, the, the story of the Eastern potentate who sent his wise men out to all parts of the world to discover a, a truth which would be valid forever and uniformly and universally true and small enough or, or pithy enough to fit on the inside, of, inscribed on the inside of the ring. And after all the time, they came back with the, with the uh, maxim, if you will, the aphorism, uh, this too shall pass. Oh, Jean, that's what my mom says. And, and it's true. But she says, this too shall pass, which that the really wonderful things will pass as yeah, well as the really true. terrific, terrifically sad you know, hard, difficult things, those two will pass. And you have to find a way to be balanced. That's right. An equilibrium in the highs, the lows, um, the fallow seasons, some sort of balance, which I guess brings us back to faith, that grounding of our being. If, if you know with all certainty that there is that one luminous thread that is connected in, in every single thing, if you hold on to that thread, I feel like there's the poet William Stafford. Are you familiar with the oh, yeah, poet William surely, Stafford? Surely. He has that really wonderful 
poem where he says, and I cannot quote the poem like you can, but it, the, the gist of it is, whatever happens, do not let go of the thread, which is really beautiful. That, that actually simplifies it, that when you're going through grief, as you're going through right now, you just have to hold on to the thread. Um, in, in the midst of change, whether you're going through a divorce or you have an illness or um, you have to move or you're suffering from aging or, you know, lumps, bumps and bruises, as my mom would say, um, <laughs> you have to hold on to the threat, sure. right? Yeah. Um, okay, so we've talked about how to that, that we're called to live this full, full life and we've talked about how to get through setbacks. Um, I'd love for you to speak on the soul because, you know, my whole blog and what I'm doing is this idea of living soulfully. And for right. me, that is, that is something, that is a sacred way of approaching this life that we have. This, as Mary Oliver says, the one precious life that we've been given. And you have a choice. You can approach it in a sacred way. This is a sacred experience that you are on. Um, or you can just go through the motions and it is a very human, mortal, transitory experience. And so for me, I'm trying to myself cultivate this practice of living soulfully, um, looking for the presence of God, being mindful, um, noticing when other people need a word of hope and, and being willing to give that, I give a piece of me to someone else. Um, what does... Do you believe in the soul? I do. Tell me about the soul, because I'm I'm really right now. You know, I we did the Izzy interview, yes. and um, when your body is disappointing you, and you're really looking around for what is something that I can feel that is me yeah. grounded. Um, the soul is the divine in me, the light in me, the eternal in me. In my sermon this past Sunday, I said the heaven in me. Um, I really hold on to that. Can you tell me a little bit about what the soul is to you and what it means to live it, soulfully it, or it, by the soul, through I think the soul? The, the, the soul part of me is the essence that ideally and hopefully has not ever changed. I right. think that's, that's always the same. There's a, it's like almost God put that little, that, that unique fingerprint in you. There's that a, doesn't change. There was a poem, and, and, I, and I, couldn't, I never found the attestation to it, but that every stanza starts, some things will never change, some things will always be the same, and then the rest of the stanza. But the soul, I think, it, it matures, it, it's gone through, you know, it, it may cross the line looking like it's been through a... <laughs> A gauntlet, so to speak. Right. Well, I've said in a poem one time that I wrote that I just, I want to feel like I'm just worn out. Yeah. Like I just hiked all through the Teton Mountains and I am worn out when right. I cross that line. Right. Well, but but that part of me, uh, I think will we'll continue. Now, how it will continue, will we call it also spirit. Um I would, I'd like to hope that I would recognize Elizabeth. Our spirits would recognize one another. I'd like to hope that uh, I could look down because her spirit is very much still here. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether she's going to linger for 
six months or a year or forever. I hope it's just as uh, long as I'm around. I love uh, that. So you do feel her spirit. I do very much. Yes. So. I, In fact, I think that's God's gift to us. But, but the the idea of that maybe we can look down and say, boy, I'm, I'm glad we did this or that for that person. Uh, you know, she's given away most of what we've saved in, in the sense that she said, well, how much are we going to give to to the building? I said, well, I don't know. What did you thought about? Well, what she came up with, I said, how are we going to find that? She said, well, we have three years to pay it off. So, uh, well, there is a sense, though, of, um, of we spend our lives actually giving giving away all that we are so all that we have until we do cross the line and it is just our soul which is maybe tired and weary but ready for the next adventure i but, hope that's not too fairy tale i really no. i really hope that god has created the soul that is lasting and right. eternal and infinite 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 i think so i think so because there's no reason to think that is not the case i think if it if it were something that we've concocted and had no basis of in scripture or in philosophy or theology, and those are those to me, philosophy slash theology are kind of one a continuity of the mm -hmm. same. Uh, so, if it weren't so strongly suggested, I don't think we would have just thought of it on our own. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that's built in. That we and just know. It's like yeah, it's intuitive. Our sonar on the inside, our exactly. sonar with God. That hey, this part of us is it's not going anywhere. Right. And uh, except you know, hang around and maybe do some good and and or go up and and uh, I don't envision. Uh, you referenced uh, high fiving uh, Saint Peter. I, I don't. I've never high fived anybody because. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed a bit arrogant <laughs> to high five about something. Now, well, I think I'd high five because I'd just be so excited that there is heaven, yeah, and I'm there. As you know, and I'd I'm, love to see. There's so many people that I would really love to see, and I just really hope, like you said, that our um, and I do believe that our spirits will identify. Well, literally, like I don't know if I believe. I had a conversation with AJ Levine, who is the New Testament professor yeah. at Vanderbilt. And, and she she's very much in the in the house of you know a full bodily resurrection and um, I I don't necessarily need a full bodily res resurrection unless I'm not 18 year old self I'm <laughs> <laughs> right. no, just kidding but I, I just think the part of me that is is valuable is the spirit and so that's that's kind of all I'm all I need okay so what are what are three things that give your soul joy? Well, let's start with the obvious. Great music. The, oh, okay. The Ode to Joy of Beethoven's Ninth. Okay. Good gracious, when, when that soprano, that she, I called her Brunhilde, she was German in this, the version that I have, and when she stood up and laid that first note on, I said, wow, and then, <laughs> Of course, the orchestra then just is overwhelming with the, and then uh, Mahler's second, the Resurrection uh, Symphony, that last movement just, you know, fills the whole little apartment 
with sound and it fills my soul with sound. Ooh, so, I'm going to come over to your apartment and have your iced tea and listen to right, that. Right. That's a date. <laughs> so maybe that's how we'll celebrate your 90th. Sounds like a winner. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but great music does. Okay. And beautiful words, wording, be it poetic or other writings mm -hmm. stir my soul. And the other thing that stirs it almost as much is the excitement of watching young people grow up. Uh -huh. I see these little people at Woodmont and then all of a sudden they're six, almost six you foot. You need to come hang out at the Mason family then. Well, <laughs> <laughs> have you can help Finn, my three-year-old. Yeah, mold him, model him. But the, but yeah, those are, are three things that, uh, that stir my soul, that make me uh, think, yeah, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to do this be. as long as I can. Tell me this, Gene. How do you, how do you intellectualize death? I mean, I know you've yeah. you've had um, practice with that in your practice. Um, you've just you've lost people along your life. You just lost your soulmate. How do you how do you understand death? Well, and are it, you afraid of death? I'm I'm not afraid of it at all. Okay, why are you not afraid of it? Because most people are. Well, because one the understandings of palliative care slash hospice care is so mature and it's going to get better all the time. It has for, for oh, So you mean decades. you're not worried about hurting? I'm not hurt, worried about hurting. I'm not worried about having an agonal seizure. seizure that used to be the case that, oh, the family says, oh, we have to do something. Well, they've already done it. The, the palliative tough. care and then hospice it care. It is. I feel like hospice that. is like the angel yeah, network. So they, they, can, are, they can ease you right through that. So, but, are, but are you, okay, so do you have anxiety about, though, that this part has come to an end and then something else, whatever that is? No. That crossing, that... I've been absolutely blessed these almost 90 years in so many, many ways. And one of the discussions we'd had earlier uh, had to do with, with the word heartbreak. I, my heart has never been broken. I've been disappointed. I've been disappointed in myself much more often than I've been disappointed in other people. I was going to ask you that, that do people disappoint you, but you, you disappoint yourself, which I find very hard to believe. Well, I suspect a halo somewhere. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of see the faint outline the, of, the, of the halo. Yeah, I've had the tarnished part back behind, <laughs> I guess. Right? But uh, uh, it, death is simply a part, it, it's, it's a part of the continuity of life. Uh, well, can you tell me, I mean, are there things that you've done over your life? So you did say you don't drink and you, right. and you don't smoke and you're very active. So those right. are three things. Can, can you name anything else for all of us that are behind you that we should be doing to live to be 90? Because my, you know, my, when I say, it's like 93. I'd love to get to 93. Right. <laughs> yeah, David's, David's grandmother, she lived to be almost 94, and, and she had a beautiful life all the way up to 93 and a quarter. And, um, yeah, so I'm aiming, I'm aiming for 93. Good, good aim. Okay, good aim. all right, so... But are there other things in, that you could say yes, Farrell, either medically or emotionally or anything? I think the I think the jury is out because the 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 foreman of the jury keeps coming back with conflicting information because I know. here we, we should are. take omega threes. We shouldn't take omega threes. We should take yeah. calcium. We shouldn't take calcium. Yeah, or or we we 
Don't eat meat, eat meat. Don't eat meat. And now they say, well, yeah, portion of meat's okay. It's okay, I know. The thing really disappointing is the the, the medical profession said uh, sugar's fine. It's the fats that cause all the problems. Turned out the the sugar industry was Mm -hmm. paying scientists under the table to, to report what really were false reports. You are true tellers. Okay, so then what would you tell us? Well, is there anything you've kind of done over the years that you think, yeah, that's actually probably helped me? I think the, the biggest thing that's, <laughs> that's helped has been aware of not getting too fat. Now, do I have a belly? Yes, but that's because <laughs> I've, I've shortened so much, there's nowhere else for it to go. <laughs> okay, so again, we get back to, what did we say at the beginning? Enthusiasm, curiosity, Moderation. Moderation, balance, discipline. Yeah. Well, love. And those are good good anchors. And, yeah, love. So you don't have a secret magical pill that we don't know about that we should be taking. No, and I I, I look at these, and periodically you show a picture of this gorgeous. In fact, you've shared some of it with us in in the little quartz sizes. Your meals. (laughs) And I said, well, that really looks good. And then I look at the 35 or 32 different ingredients and, oh. and the or ingredients and the sequence in which you have to mix them. And I thought, yeah. Come oh, on. gosh. Okay, I need to go simpler. <laughs> I tend to be, you know, with six kids, though, my, my recipes are pretty, let's do this. I got to do it in 20 right. minutes. Quick, yeah. quick, quick. Right. Um, but at any rate. But it, I enjoy when we were talking about soul joys. You know, I really do. I enjoy a beautiful meal yeah, presentation. Absolutely. Uh, the fellowship, the, the food, the taste, the whole thing. That's what I'm saying. Speaking of which, you asked in one of the sample questions, what about that special meal? Yeah, what would be your it, special it, meal? It, it wouldn't be Babette's Feast. That was a wonderful movie, though. What, oh, a, what a treat yeah, Babette's, Babette's Feast. Babette's okay. Feast was. Um, it would be probably uh, the, the group that would be there would be family. Okay. Uh, and What pers- music would you be playing? Um... I don't know that we'd be playing music because the conversation would be, if, if it were good, I'd get upset that we're not listening to the music. If the conversation were good, it's going to get a little bit louder. So we might put the music off. Okay. I'd, I'd limit the hors d'oeuvre because you tend to fill up on them if they're really yes, good. Yes, you do, right. And, and I, I love So you. what would you be your big feast? It would probably be uh, pretty plain. It would, it would have probably steak possible venison, but it would have steak, it would have hoe cakes, uh, which is scalded uh, cornmeal, okay. and then in, cooked in good grease, good animal grease. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's not heart healthy, but that's okay. Every that's now right, and then, that's, right. that's a good thing. But in, in uh, heavy uh, cast iron uh, skillet. Cast iron skillet. So okay. uh, that sort of thing, but but it would be it would be a fairly simple meal. Okay. And it it, it doesn't more important who's around the table. That's right. right. That's that, always that would be, more that important. That would be family and family and some some joking or teasing among the family members. It would you know it it, it was almost selfish uh, when when Elizabeth was so sick and couldn't be a part of it, but to have all three children there. Uh, and their families couldn't be. They were the, mm-hmm. the children come in to visit, but, right? But just to come in to visit. That's kind of nice, though. You've had your children around the table with you, yeah. And so you good. you brought a couple of books, which I'm yes. going to put on the blog. Things that have been meaningful to you. 
But you you've called this the chick book or the the, well, the chick 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 book chicklet chicklet it's um gift and which my dear friend Jamie Thompson gave one to me gift from the sea um, by Anne Morrow Lindbergh as yes. being a book that was very meaningful to you. Yes. Can you remember something from the book that especially spoke well, to you? Well, the fact that that she found such surcease from the. Uh, the busyness and of the fame of the family, mm -hmm. uh, just getting away by herself. And she frequently would go just by herself. She might have other people come occasionally, but uh, spending it at the beach and, and looking for shells. And I sent you the picture of the, the uh, perfect, uh, uh, well, perfect, uh, what does it call it? Uh, the wing, angel's wing yes, shell yes, that I superimposed on that little card that's yes, several that decades old. And that was fun. I guess it gets back to, but, I mean, what she does so well is just appreciating the simple. That's right, exactly. Appreciating whether it's the, the people around your table, whether it's being out in nature and listening to the deer or the squirrels. Um, or reading or a book like ocean. this, or the yeah. ocean, like Anne Morrow yeah. said. Okay, so I usually end each conversation with um, hope. Yes. Your definition of hope. What gives you hope? I think the, the best definition of hope is that I want to look for the best in both myself and others, and then to encourage that. Now one has to hope for something, and so uh, that fell into that category of healing because we to heal we have to have something we're healing toward. Right. So you have to have indices of where you are and where you want to go. Yes. And if the index generally is moving in an upward direction, that's that's what one hopes for. Mm -hmm. That's healing. Um, the hope is that that. We would, and this is to, to steal from Elizabeth, just, you know, <laughs> uh, shamelessly. I feel like Elizabeth is with us. 5'11", that's is. what we, we, we were the tall women. She, and, <laughs> but she said, you know, we don't love frequently enough or hard enough. Yeah. And so I would hope that, that love would become more a part of the ethos of most of society. Right now, we're so fractured. We're so fractured in this country alone. Being what a did Elizabeth say about hope again? That we need to... We need to... The great hope is that we would love better, love more. And harder. 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 Yeah. That's... So, but, but hope is, I hope, an upward trajectory of society and un, subtended by love. But however that translates, right now it's very difficult to try to, to make sense of it all. But that would be my overall hope. But, but one can be just a little more selfish with hope and hope that we as a society here in the U.S. could be the beacon that our forefathers and our founders envisioned us to be. Right now, I think we're anything but a beacon. Oh, if I were well, an let's outsider, let's land on a positive note. Well, okay. come on, Gene, give me right. something positive. I'll, I'll give you something positive. <laughs> it, it's it's a poem by Anne Weems. Oh, you know, I, you introduced me to Anne Weems. I love Anne Weems. And this is from her little book, Reaching for Rainbows. Okay. And uh, 
I first heard this when uh, President uh, Trott, I think that's the pronunciation, of Belmont University used it in a, uh, actually it was at a funeral of a, a patient of mine and, and ultimately a friend and one of his faculty. But it goes like this. If I could, I'd write for you a rainbow and splash it with all the colors of God and hang it in the window of your being so that each knew God's morning, your eyes could open first to hope and promise. If I could, I'd wipe away your tears and hold you close forever in shalom. But God never promised I could write a rainbow, never promised I could suffer for you, only promised I could love you, and that I do. Oh, beautiful. Thank, Thank you, Gene.